Thank you, Jesse. Isn't it great to be part of the body of Christ? So many wonderful things happening and things to be involved in and having fun and knowing that all of it comes because that uh, Jesus gave his life that we may embrace and experience it in its fullness. So, yeah, fantastic. We've uh, shared a lot this year about transformation which is obviously about being made more Christ-like. And uh, as, we, uh, as we embrace this, one of the important things, which is what I want to talk about this morning, is holding on to the territory that we have gained. It's not just an issue of taking territory, and I know we all love to do that, and it can be incredibly challenging. But it's once we do have gained territory, once we've laid hold of some things, once we've dealt some stuff in our life, it's so important that we hold on to that. And that doesn't just happen. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. In Revelation 3.11, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So it's important that we understand that we hold fast to what we already have in him. We hold fast to the issues in life that we've dealt with, that we've overcome as we move on to pick up other issues. So I want to, I, as anyone who knows me knows, I love history. And I want to talk about a story from the American Civil War, which deeply impacted me when I, I first re- read it. So it's, uh, this actually took place, if you're up with any American history, uh, you'll, you'll know all about this. It's called the Battle of the Little Round Top. And by the way, just a little bit of American history so you do know. If you got confused when Jesse was speaking and you don't know what candy is, in New Zealand we call them lollies, Okay. Just, I just thought I'd throw that in, that's all. Um, so there, it's a famous battle in the American Civil War called the Battle of the Little Round Top. And it's an amazing story of how a smaller group of men were greatly outnumbered and were under attack. And they had, they'd gained this hill called the Little Round Top. And they were trying to hold it under an extremely powerful challenge from the Confederate army who they were fighting against. And I I want to, um, at that point, it was impossible to know who was going to win. And I want you to read, I want to read to you the write-up of Colonel Joshua Chamberlain, who, by the way, was a born-again Christian and a wonderful man of God and a great life history, if you ever want to read that about him. But let's just focus on this, because this is what he said. He was a a key commander of this area, and he was later awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, which in America is a huge award that is not given to a lot of people. So he says this, The edge of the conflict swayed to and fro with wild whirlpools and eddies, At times I saw around me more of the enemy than my own men. Gaps opening, swallowing, closing again. Squads of stalwart men who had cut their way through us, disappearing as if translated. All around a strange mingled roar. Now let me ask you a question. Does this often sound like often your life as a Christian? 
I have certainly had seasons in my life where it's just been like that. All sorts of battle, all sorts of fighting, and I don't know really whether I'm winning or losing. All I know, I'm in this battle. At times I'm confused. At times I don't understand what God is doing, what is going on, why these things are happening. And uh, certainly we know we are in a war zone, and we are. And the Bible makes it very clear that we are. And apart from the great rests that God gives us, there's almost no neutral territory. There's almost no place of peace. The place of peace is found in Christ. It's not found somewhere where you can go as a born-again, on-fire-for-God believer and just encounter neutrality. That doesn't exist. That's why Jesus says, I will prepare a table before you where? in the midst of your enemies. So important. So we have to learn how to survive all this and to hold the line. And so let me just start, before we get into some of this, by stating the obvious. If we're not regularly reading God's Word, if we're not regularly in prayer, if we're not regularly worshipping Him, in every aspect of our life. And if we are not regularly fellowshipping with other believers that God's placed us with and amongst, we are not going to hold ground. It cannot be done. Those are the basic fundamental elements of the Christian faith. And if we're not at least doing that, we're going to find that anything we may gain will be quickly robbed from us. So it's important to understand that. Proverbs 3 verse 6 says, Seek his will and all you do, and he will direct your paths. Now surely that means if we don't seek his will and all we do, he won't. Surely that means that. That's why we're urged to seek his will and all that we do. Then he will direct our paths. So it's important we do that. Without a proper relationship with God, without knowing his word and his ways, we cannot hold the line because we have to line ourselves up with him and what he's made available to us to be able to do that. And we will find that as the enemy mounts his attack, we'll run out of ammunition, we'll run out of sustenance and frequently he gains the victory. All too frequently when we understand Jesus already won that for you and I 2,000 years ago and we celebrated that in communion this morning. See, the true Christian life is not about applying the world's principles to our life where the only difference between them and us is that we may have a better or stronger moral base. That's not the Christianity, the way of life that Jesus died to bring us. What we are meant to do is shine a light in the darkness. And by the way, let me just say this, and I don't want to get off the track or bogged down. People don't come to see the light. They come to see what the light looks like, what it's shining upon. That's a very important point because I love the passages in Isaiah 60 and, you know, Matthew and Matthew 7 and we could go along through that. But understand, why do we shine a light in the darkness? So it reflects what is in there. 
You shine a light in your room when it's dark, not just because you want to see the light. You want to see what's in the room. We cannot be light in a world of darkness unless we have something to display that has been built in our lives through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important to understand that. So to hold the line, the first thing we must know that God has called us and commissioned us to our journey in life. And this means if you're single at the moment, you need to know God's called you at this point in time to be single. If you're married, married. When you go to your job, whatever it may be, you need to know that at this point of time, that's what God has called you to do. And we can go through community. We can go through so many things in every aspect of our life. But what we're meant to be about doing, and the Old Testament shows this so clearly, I wish we could lay hold of this in a better way. We're actually building a story. Our life is building a story. And God is putting that story in his book. Now, the book is not the Bible, okay? We know that that's finished being written and it's not to be added to or subtracted from. But God is gathering up your story of life and my story of life into his story that we're all a part of. It's an important point. That is why in in Deuteronomy 6, um, God urges his people to tell their story to their children and their grandchildren. Now, I know if you're parents or grandparents, grandparents is much easier and much more fun. But I know that if you're parents, there's certain things you have to do with your kids. And that some of that's discipline and some of that's all those other things. But listen... Your children need to come to you and hear your story or your stories of life. I have nine grandchildren. Now, many of them love what they call tech time. I've had to learn what that word is. That means they're allowed to play on your computer, your iPad or your iPhone when they're with you. That's tech time. I don't let them, when I spend time with them, just have tech time. Now, I give them some because I want to be a nice granddad, okay? But what I often do, I tell them stories. And they love it. They love it. They love hearing stories, whether I'm putting them to bed, if I'm babysitting, or whether they're around at my place or whatever we're doing. And so in Deuteronomy 6, we're told, you should, your children, your grandchildren need to know your story of life. And you should be good at telling them, whether you're male or female, that's not the issue. You should be good at telling them. So what story should you tell? I love hearing these stories from people. So here's the story. We should be able to sit down with anybody in this room and say, what's God's calling on your life? I made the mistake when I was raising my kids of constantly saying to them, what's God saying to you? What's going on? Guess what my kids do to me all the time now? Dad, what's God saying to you? They say to their their grandchildren, Go and ask granddad, what is God saying to you? So you see, these things come back on you, but they're good things to come back on. And sometimes I think, oh my gosh, I'm catching up with the kids. I better have lined up. What is God saying to me right now? What is God's calling on your life? And how did it come about? 
Sorry, I should have put this up on a PowerPoint. What amazing miracles or stories about his provision to you can you tell me? One of the things I I spend a lot of time talking to Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and others, and when they come to my door and I'm, we know the story, take the question off them. The whole thing of the power of the question is a major deal, which I'm not going to cover now. But they're taught to come to your door and they always hold the questions. They're the ones. That's why when you see TV interviewers, the interviewers don't, you never ask them a question. They hold the question. So who holds the question holds the power, right? Hold another story in that, which I won't go there. So I say to them, hello, how are you? And they start off their spiel. I say, hey, stop. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. What has Jesus done in your life in the last couple of days? Do you know what? They don't have those testimonies. And I, I say to them, look, I, I don't, they get enough abuse. I don't, I, I don't ever abuse them. I invite them in. They never come in. They stand on the doorstep. But then I say to them, here's what Jesus has done in my life in the last week. Here's what Jesus has done with my children and my grandchildren. Here's what's going on. Now tell me, what is God doing in your life? And when they stutter and stammer, I say, hey guys, I'm sorry to say this, you need a new God. He's not working. Whoever he is, there's no evidence of his life. You need get a new God. I'm telling you about my God. Now they pretty quickly leave. But that's okay. Take the question and then give the power of your testimony and watch what happens to the people on your doorstep. I mean it. It never fails. What amazing miracles or stories about God's provision can you tell me? What is unique about your life? Ephesians 2.10 says that every one of us was created with a purpose that Jesus prepared beforehand that we should walk in it. Everybody is unique. So what is unique in your life? What has happened in your life to make it very clear that it is God directing your life, not you? Now, it doesn't matter whether you're like Emma and you're off overseas or whether you wake up in every morning in a job you've been in for 40 years. That's fine. The question is no different. It's no different. What has happened in your life to make it very clear that it is God directing your life, not you? Final point, what does God want you to achieve in the next five years? I love having these stories with brothers, talking about these stories with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love it. Sure, I love the rugby and what's on TV, but this is so much better. These are great conversation points. See, if we can answer these questions, we have a very clear base in our lives that we can petition God from. I want to give you a very simple and quick um, uh, example of this, which is coming up from uh, the whole story of Solomon. So we come up, David had a whole lot of sons, as we know. So... Solomon discovers at a certain point in time that God has commissioned him. So it says in 1 Chronicles 28.5, this is David speaking, of all my sons, he, being God, has chosen 
my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So Solomon discovers that God has made it very clear to David that David's heir is going to be Solomon. And of course he is. And Solomon supersedes David and becomes king. Having knowing this, it is now with great confidence that Solomon petitions God. So he says to Chronicles 1.10, Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? I love this. Solomon says, what you have commissioned me to do is way bigger than any single person can achieve in their life. Do you know something, brothers and sisters? What God has commissioned you, and I don't care if you're five or 95, What God has commissioned you for is way bigger than what you can achieve in your life. And that's where it gets exciting because we go to him and we say, I know you've called me to do this. It's way too much for me. So I'm coming to you to make up the gap and to supply the power and produce through me what it is that you want done. So Solomon says, for who can rule this great people of you? And God responds. Because if God got us into this thing, God has to empower us to get through it. Otherwise, he set us up for failure and God doesn't do that. So he responds back to Chronicles 1.12. And he says, wisdom and knowledge has been granted to you. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor those will come after you. So Solomon understands his calling. On the basis of his calling, he petitions God. And because God was behind making Solomon king, Solomon, a God provides what Solomon needs to be a great king. And blesses him for his obedience as well, because such is the way of our loving father. Amen? So coming back to holding the line, the only thing that gets us through this thing called life, which we've all encountered, the only thing that enables us to hold the line, because when you become a Christian, you encounter an enemy in a way that no non-Christian ever does, and that's true. The only thing that enables us to hold the line is to know that God has called us into what we are doing and that he will supply in our times of need what we need. In uh, Matthew eleven twelve, it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, suffers violence and violent men take it by force. It's just, it's, don't worry about the gender, it's men and women. To be successful in what God's called us, we need to have some degree of militancy in our lives. And we are out in the real world and we don't have a lot of things to shelter behind and that's the reality of it. Most of what we do is out in the open and if we're going to be effective for God, it becomes pretty obvious to us pretty quick that we are now in an element of principalities and powers and that the battle is going all around us. And listen, and this is what we have to get hold of right now. Our goal is not to survive the war. It's already been won. Our goal is to take that territory that Jesus has already won for us. 
So let's come back to the Battle of Gettysburg and the round top, little round top. At the most crucial point of this battle, Chamberlain discovers something. They're just about out of ammunition. They report to him and say, the ammunition's all gone. What are we going to do? Now, what do most people do in a warfare when they've run out of ammunition or fast running out of ammunition? They retreat. They'll retreat and huddle, think, wow, we've lost the ability to fight back. We're in big trouble now. The enemy's attacking. Let's try and find some cover somewhere. And I love this because Chamberlain instead makes an incredible decision. He says, okay, we're nearly out of ammunition, guys, so we're going to attack. And you imagine what everybody thought. This is a suicide mission, you're crazy. His first response was, the enemy doesn't know we're low on ammunition. They have no idea of any of that information. So he orders his troops to attack. And I want to read you out of my history book the written version of the story. It says, The Confederates were taken by surprise. Some of those in front dropped their weapons. Others turned and ran. They then got another horrifying surprise. Chamberlain's B Company, who had survived earlier fighting and had taken shelter behind a stone wall, saw the Confederates retreating and fired into them. Now listen to the point. There's a lot of wounded people, Christians, around everywhere. When those that are bold enough mount an attack... And those who are wounded see the power in Christ, see that the victory's already won. They jump out from their shelters and join in. See, this is what we've got to mount the attack. And we've got to believe that a whole lot of wounded people, when they see us going forward, when they see the the courage, but when they see the victory being won all over again, they're going to say, wow, I'm going to get right into this. I'm going to get behind this and I'm going to go with it as well. Thank you, Peter. So they saw the Confederates retreating and fired into them. The Confederates were totally perplexed and many were struck with three or four balls from different directions. They suffered a huge defeat and said afterwards that they never wanted to meet Chamberlain's regiment, which was the 20th Maine, again. See, a siege mentality which is about huddling down, hoping that the trouble will go away, is totally contrary to the Christian message. It's not what we're about. Romans 8.13 says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. See, when we read the scripture in Matthew 16, we don't read it literally enough when it says the gates of hell will not prevail. And frequently when I say to people, what does that mean? It says, oh, it means when all the enemy's attacking and attacking, he won't overcome us. That doesn't make sense. What are gates? Gates are put around or in the entrance to a fence. A fence is covering a fort. 
It is saying this, we will mount such an onslaught against the enemy that his fortress and his gates will not be able to prevail against the attack we are mounting. It's got nothing to do with defense. It can't make sense if it's got to do with offense. It says the gates of hell will not prevail. If you put gates on your property, you're probably hoping to keep the dogs out or whatever is out around there. And it's saying the gates won't prevail against the onslaught. This is not about you and I being protected while we hide in forts, brothers and sisters. God doesn't build forts. We're on the attack. And he says the enemy won't be able to keep us away from the territory that Christ gained for us 2,000 years ago. Get in there and take it and don't worry about the gates you see around everything he's illegally holding. They'll come down when Christ's army goes forward. So here's some tools that we can use that God's provided for this. The first one, and again, I do apologize. I've got to get better on getting stuff to the guys so they could put it up. But the first one is the armor of God. We have to learn what the armor of God is and how to wear it out of Ephesians 6. And a couple of years ago, we did some wonderful stuff around all of that that went through the home groups and everything. So if you want a whole lot more on the armor of God, um, see at the desk or whoever you see, and they'll provide a wealth of information about that for you. Second point, patrol your borders. I used to love spending time in the bush and I didn't stay in huts much unless the weather was bad. I liked to go way into the bush and put up a little tent and stay there for days. And one of the things I love doing, and in New Zealand there's no predators, wild animals running around waiting to eat you, which was quite nice. But one of the things I love doing is getting up each morning and wandering around my perimeter to see what's been going on. And at night, you might have heard possums having a major fight and you wander around and you see all the fur and you think, oh, well, they were over there and, that, and you see footprints. And mate, there's stories all over. When you wake up in the morning, there's stories all around about the activity that's been going on while you were sleeping at night. So here's my question. When did you last patrol your borders? Who's been around your family or inside your house? Who's been around your kids or your business? Nothing wrong with those things. We live in a world of people. But the issue is what's been left behind? What may be disturbing your camp? What may be disturbing these places? When did you last check, without going on a witch hunt, when did you last check for enemy activity in your life? When did you last check on how are the things going that God's given you to steward, your finances, all of those things. Now, we have to take ground by learning the skills God would have us learn in stewarding those things, but we also have to understand that there's an enemy there wanting to rob them from us. And sometimes it may be that there's some enemy activity around us that we need to deal with. Just occasionally patrol your borders. Do a check on all the things that God has given you to steward and care for. Third one is keeping the Sabbath. I know we're not under law anymore. I fully understand that. But God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired. Now, we may be tired, 
But he didn't rest for that reason. God took the day off to enjoy his work, consider what he had done, and what he intended to do next. God loved his work, so he would do his work and then sit back and enjoy it. Now, I have seen this modeled over the last four years or more by my beloved wife, Linda. Linda really amuses me. She'll go out and do work in the garden or around the property and everything like that, and it all starts growing. And then Linda will say, come and look at this. Come and look what happened. Hey, look what I did today. Didn't it, doesn't it look great? And she does amazing stuff. And I have watched Linda do this, and I so much see the heart of the father saying, wow, sit back and look at my work. Isn't it great? And do you know some of the work he sits back and looks at and relaxes and enjoys? You. Every one of you. He says, you're the apple of my eye. He sits back and enjoys that. I am a bit of a perfectionist, so if I'm going to do anything, I want it to be done really, really well, and I'll spend as much time as necessary to do that. But one of my problems is I'm too quick to move on to the next project, then the next project, then the next project, and I miss the enjoyment often of some of the things that I have done. Stop. Just stop and look at the wonder around you. Some of you have done with your own hands. Some of you has been created by God. And enjoy it. We don't do enough of that. But there is another point here. Most of us perform poorly when we're tired, undernourished, or overloaded. And one of the most effective ways to avoid this is to have a day off. See, in the Old Testament, failure to observe the Sabbath has had a death penalty. Do you know what, brothers and sisters? I am suspicious of the fact that it may still have. Now, it's not coming from a punitive God. It's coming from us who are wired to work six days, and by the way, not five, work six days and rest one, who are not doing it, I think it's the cause for a huge amount of health failure. A huge amount of health failure. Because if that's in our DNA and we don't observe it, sooner or later we will pay a price for it. Lack of rest puts us into a reactive rather than a proactive mode. Sometimes when I'm tired and grumpy, they're the times when I really regret the things I've said or done. Amen? See, often then we find we've become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Don't check out on us, brothers and sisters. We need you. I mean that. Rest up regularly. Enjoy the fruit of your labours. Come back refreshed and ready to participate again. This whole thing's God's responsibility, we just play a small part in it. That's why he says, roll all the cares and burdens upon me. I'll carry them, work hard for six days and rest up and enjoy it all seventh. Final point, outside advice, mentors, coaches, whatever. Remember what we've done on Paul, Barnabas and Timothy? If you're active, if you're intentional and if you're zealous, For God's kingdom, you need a Paul, a mentor or a coach in your life, preferably more than one, but you need that. And by the way, if you get somebody, it has to be somebody who you respect and who you believe has has, has achieved well in what you're pursuing, 
They may be younger than you sometimes, maybe older, that's okay. But you need somebody who's not so impressed by you that they won't call you back, sit you down and forgive the expression, but kick your butt when it's necessary. Don't just go to yes people who are going to tell you how great you are. Go to people who are going to tell you what you need to hear. The scriptures, I know the Holy Spirit is a great encourager, but the scriptures teach that God disciplines those he loves. And Proverbs teaches us that anyone who hates reproof is stupid. And it says that word, I didn't say it. Proverbs says that anyone who hates reproof is stupid. Okay, I'm going to wind this up. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We've talked a lot about this. All of us should be looking for opportunities to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, this passage calls us to believe that God is faithful, that Jesus is faithful, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and to gather together as part of the biblical community. So we go forward together, we watch one another's back and we support one another at times that we need, but we also provide inspiration, leadership and encouragement on the journey. See, even in the darkest times, we're told that in Christ we can arise and shine for our light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon us and his glory appears on us. That's worth holding on to. Hold on to the line. Hold on to what you've gained. Hold on to those things. Take some rest and enjoy them. Refresh yourself. Then let's go forward and take another bite at the territory that Christ has already won for us. Father, we thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for our life. And we thank you, Lord, that there is so much territory that you would have us take hold of in this life because you've already won it for us. Help us use the tools. Help us stand with one another. Help us see where you're leading us. And Father, may we join our hands in yours that we don't fall behind, we don't run ahead, but together with you and your community and your bride, we achieve the purposes that you've set out for us in this lifetime, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.